Okay, folks, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, session looking at archaeological uh, evidence and Jesus. Um, I won't, won't uh, spend time introducing myself. If you want to find out about me, you can go to my website at uh, peterswilliams.com that's on the screen there. So let's uh, take a look at this subject of archaeological evidence and Jesus. And the way in which that archaeological evidence helps us to answer uh, many of the uh, uninformed claims that circulate in today's culture about Jesus. Um, claims such as that uh, Jesus probably didn't exist, uh, according to Victor Stenger, one of the new atheist writers, for example. Uh, claims such as that the Gospels are works of fiction, uh, according to atheist Richard Dawkins. Um, the idea uh, that the idea of a divine Jesus was something of an innovation uh, late in Christian history uh, after its beginnings, um, comparatively speaking, uh, that it was an innovation decided upon at the Council of Nicaea uh, in the 4th century, uh, rather than an idea that goes back to uh, the original uh, Christian community. So we'll look at how we can reply to some of these ideas uh, using archaeology. Uh, archaeology being, uh, of course, the, the systematic study of the material remains of past human behaviour. Uh, if there's a, a sort of overall summary argument that we can uh, hang everything together on, today. It's uh, this quote from Christian philosopher Lydia McGrew in her book uh, Hidden in Plain View, where she gives this nice uh, analogy. And she says, if you sample a loaf of bread um, on both ends and at several points in the middle and find it good, it would be cavailing. This, this means being far too sceptical. It would be far too sceptical to say that, well, perhaps just the parts you haven't tested happen to be the mouldy parts, the parts that aren't good to eat. In other words, if we sample something, be it a loaf of bread or uh, the New Testament Gospels, and where we check it in lots of places, we find that it's good, uh, that it's sound, um, then it would be being far too sceptical just to say that well it just so just so happened by coincidence to be the bits that we hadn't been able to check yet that were unreliable that were not good uh, in other words the more ways that we can check the gospel against the archaeological record for example and show that the two match up that gives us an increasing uh, evidential support for thinking that the whole of the gospel accounts are reliable. We'll look in particular at archaeological evidence relating to historical places, cities, buildings, historical people, um, general and specific names of people, people's titles, even people's relationships one to another and uh, the relationship between archaeological evidence and historical culture 
um, the way in which archaeology gives us a sort of background culture of the New Testament era and even can tell us about uh, people's beliefs and something of when people held those beliefs. Starting off with historical places. And let's uh, start off with uh, Bethlehem, uh, somewhere that some skeptics uh, have held uh, didn't exist at the time of Jesus. Um, but here's a, a quote from uh, Eli Shukron in uh, 2012, uh, talking about this discovery. This is a very large picture of a very small thing. It's a, what's called a boule, or a small uh, impression in clay, which would be about the, the size of your thumbnail uh, in actuality. And he says, here we can read the word Bethlehem in a clear Hebrew inscription from the first temple period on a on a boule, one of these little impressions found in Israel that arrived from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, uh, maybe to pay some tax about paying taxes on some goods. Uh, this is the Bethlehem next to Jerusalem referred to uh, in the Bible. Or uh, where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, this is um, a top-down view of a house from the first century unearthed in 2010. Uh, excavation director uh, Yardino Alexander is quoted here as saying that the discovery is, is important because it reveals that for the first time a, a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth and sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus. Um, she says the building we found is small and modest and most likely typical of dwellings uh, in that period uh, and she even uh, comments that it may well have been a place that Jesus and his contemporaries were familiar with because of its dating. Uh, Capernaum is somewhere that's mentioned uh, a lot as one of the uh, places that Jesus based ministry out of. Um, Peter's mother-in-law lived there. Um, this is a picture of the uh, synagogue in Capernaum, but actually the 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 the, the lighter stone is uh, a later synagogue than at Jesus's era. But if you look down to the below the the, the light-coloured stone, you'll see the black basalt stone, um, and that black basalt. Uh, seems to be people think the, uh, the 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 foundation of the first century synagogue and later that synagogue was knocked down and, and the foundation reused to build a new synagogue upon but the the foundation of the first century synagogue uh, is still there and there are 16 references to Capernaum in the Gospels and particularly it, it's mentioned that Jesus taught in the synagogue there, uh, according to Mark 1 and Luke 4. Uh, so there was a synagogue there uh, during uh, the first century. Uh, according to Luke 7-5, uh, it was uh, built by, i.e. Paid, paid for by, uh, a Roman centurion, interestingly enough. Here's a, a more recent find uh, of a first century synagogue. This was uh, discovered at uh, Bet Shemesh in uh, May 2020. 
Um, scripture says that Jesus frequently taught in synagogues, uh, lots of references that one could give. Um, the Bet Shemesh synagogue adds to a growing list of first century synagogues that have been excavated, uh, indicating that they, they were um, fixtures of communities uh, all around Israel. Um, as is described in the Bible, uh, something that had been uh, questioned in the past. Back to Capernaum, I mentioned Peter. Um, this is what is very plausibly Peter's house. Um, and it's a little bit difficult to tell what's what here in this picture. As above it, we have the, a concrete viewing platform and then you'll see there's a sort of concentric series of walls. Uh, it started with the discovery of uh, the remains of an octagonal 5th century church in Capernaum and in 1968 archaeologists discovered uh, the remains of a 4th century church underneath that 5th century church. Uh, and then they found out that the 4th century church seemed to have been built around a 1st century house uh, from Capernaum, which had apparently been used as a Christian meeting place since around the second half of the 1st century. Uh, and interestingly, uh, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine's mother, Egeria, writing in the 4th century, uh, talking about going on pilgrimage in the Holy Land, uh, wrote that in Capernaum, the house of the Prince of the Apostles has been made into a church with its original walls still standing. It's where the Lord cured the paralytic. Let's move from Capernaum to uh, first century Jerusalem. This is a, a CGI recreation of first century Jerusalem and the, the temple on the Temple Mount here. Uh, lots of archaeology of Jerusalem that we could go into. Let's just pick a, a few uh, highlights. Um, 2004, workmen doing some repairs stumbled across uh, a series of stone steps which archaeologists uncovered and discovered that these steps actually uh, formed uh, sides of a pool uh, that went down to some water uh, coming out of the water near the uh, uh, exit of uh, Hezekiah's uh, tunnel. Uh, it, it turned out to be what they reckoned to be the first century ritual bathing pool of Siloam which is mentioned in John chapter 9 uh, at the beginning. Uh, these ancient steps leading down, you can still see the water at, at the bottom of the steps here and some pictures here of some of the pottery and coins uh, that were used in the dating of the pool. Uh, pottery styles change over time and that helps archaeologists date things and of course coins nicely. People tend to stamp dates on them when they make them uh, so that helps uh, archaeologists to securely uh, date finds as well. Uh, Solomon's portico was part of that Temple Mount complex, uh, a double colonnade that surrounded the temple built by Herod. And in 2017, uh, they discovered uh, an ornamental capital. A capital's the, the top bit of a pillar 
uh, you had to have a bottom bit and the, the, the column of the pillar and then a, a top bit that sort of flares outwards uh, uh, before the thing resting on top of the pillar. And this is the, the, the top of this uh, colonnade, an ornamental capital, from one of the portico columns of Solomon's uh, portico in the temple. Um, it uh, indicates this find that the um, 41 foot column had a circumference of about 30 inches uh, round at its top. Uh, John 10.23 for example says Jesus visited Solomon's portico and acts and a couple of places mentions about the early church using this portico as a, a meeting place. Moving on swiftly from historical places to historical people. Let's take a fascinating passage from near the beginning of Luke's Gospel because here's a passage where Luke is situating historically what he's writing about in, in good historical style and uh, Luke 3 verses 1 to 2 it talks about in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar the Roman Emperor when Pontius Pilate was governor the Roman governor of Judea uh, Judea uh, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee Tetrarch was a governor of a quarter of a province so he was governor of a quarter of a province uh, in Galilee and his brother Herod's brother Philip Tetrarch of Atyria and uh, Traconitus uh, who's mentioned in Josephus in Jewish Antiquities and Licinius Tetrarch of Al uh, Albini I'm probably mangling some of the names here uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas the word of God came John son of Zechariah John the Baptist uh, in the desert so lots of names uh, from Roman and Jewish society mentioned here. Lots of names that we can check against historical records like Josephus but also archaeological data. Um, Tiberius Caesar uh, being the Roman Emperor at the time has lots of archaeological artifacts associated with him of course including the uh, denarius coin here uh, commonly referred to as the tribute penny uh, from the Bible you know, whose, whose image is on this coin, Jesus asking them about paying taxes. Um, the coin shows the portrait of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, or the famous Pontius Pilate inscription, sometimes called the Pilate Stone. It was a, a, a Latin inscription on a, a bit of stone that had been uh, reused from its original context uh, as building material um, but you can work out that the original context was a, a temple to the glory of Tiberius Caesar, something called a, a Tiberium. And this text mentions, uh, we have here a reconstruction, uh, the bits in brackets uh, d don't exist, they have to be sort of reconstructed. Uh, but this Tiberium of Pontius Pilatus, uh, Prefectus, Prefect, so Pontius Pilate uh, Prefect. Uh, this was discovered in uh, 1961 at Caesarea Maritime uh, in Israel. Uh, a much more recent find relating to Pontius Pilate is the Pilate Ring discovered in 2018 uh, when scientists announced that this uh, seal ring uh, would have been a ring used for 
making impressions in uh, like clay or uh, in wax uh, to make those kind of Bula impressions that we saw earlier. Uh, and this was the ring that would have made those kind of impressions, uh, a seal ring, uh, excavated actually in the late 1960s at Herodium, but uh, as is often the case, it takes a long time to get people to go through the finds that are dug up uh, in archaeological digs and to, to sort of uh, work out what they are and to write papers about it and to publish the material. And this was only published in, tw in 2018, uh, this discovery from the 1960s, um, that this ring uh, carried the inscription of Pilate, or you know, belonging to Pilate, uh, in Greek letters uh, set around the picture of a wine vessel. Uh, the, the Greek uh, represents a uh, dative form of the name, uh, which would be written slightly different in a different type of lettering. Um, the inscription is on a, a, a rather corroded, as one might imagine, copper alloy ring. Uh, and it was uh, originally quite difficult to, to read what it said. Um, and it was only sort of more recent advanced photographic techniques that allowed the archaeologist to, to read what was on the ring and to recognise it for, for what it was. Now, this ring was probably kind of not fancy enough to have been worn by Pilate himself. Rather, the archaeologists think that it was likely worn by someone who was authorised by Pilate to do work on his behalf. You know, probably like a, a, a slave who would have used uh, the seal to make official communications uh, about things under Pilate's authority. Uh, Herod the Great, here's a, a bronze coin of Herod the Great. Uh, on the obverse side is a, a tripod uh, with a ceremonial bowl uh, on top and the inscription Herod King around it. And the year that the coin was struck uh, in year three, uh, I, year three of Herod's reign. Uh, this tripod and the, the bowl and here's the in inscription around here. Uh, that would have dated it to uh, 37 BC. Uh, in 1996, uh, Israeli professor of archaeology Echid Netzer discovered some broken pottery in Masada uh, with a Latin inscription on it uh, that says uh, Herod the Great, King of the Jews or King of Judea. And that's the, f the first time that this mention of a, the full biblical title of King Herod has been discovered in the archaeological record. Um, this was part of a, an amphora, um, a jug, as it were, uh, used for the transportation probably of, of wine uh, dating to around 19 uh, BC. Licinius. Uh, now, scholars were a bit perplexed by this because um, it appeared that Luke didn't know what he was writing about because well, everybody already knew that uh, there was a Licinius uh, in the archaeological record, but he, he wasn't a tetrarch, uh, but a ruler uh, of Calchas, uh, half a century before uh, this uh, Licinius that Luke talks about. Um, but then later, uh, an inscription was found uh, from the time of Tiberius, uh, i.e. Uh, 14 to 37 AD, uh, which names someone called Licinius as tetrarch in Albion near Damascus. So 
there'd been uh, two government officials uh, at different times uh, named Licinius. Uh, different people can have the same name. Caiaphas, this is a, a very ornate uh, ossuary, as they're called, or bone box, for reinterring the, the bones of the buried dead. Uh, discovered in a tomb located in the, the south of Jerusalem, were several of these uh, bone box ossuaries, uh, one of which many historians believe relates to the former high priest Caiaphas and his family, and uh, on the side and, and back uh, of the, here's the side, uh, of the ossuary, there's an inscription scratched into uh, the ossuary of, with Caiaphas's name mentioned there. This is a Yosef Bar Caiapha, Yosef son of Caiapha, and given where it was found and how ornate it was and, and so on and so forth, I think this, this is probably Caiaphas uh, from the New Testament. Here's uh, what I call the, the Bulgarian bone box of John the Baptist, uh, a discovery from 2011. Uh, now of course we all know that uh, in medieval churches uh, you got uh, income by having tourists come to your church and pay to see reliquaries of uh, bones from the saints and so on. And if you put them all together, then you, you kind of tend to find out that, you know, St. Peter must have had four legs and three right, th right arms and, and so on. Uh, however, there is some plausibility to this particular claim. Um, there was uh, an archaeologist, uh, if I get the name right here, called uh, Pop Konstantinov, who headed a, headed a team that uncovered this reliquary, uh, an ancient container for relics. Um, in which there were eight bone pieces uh, attributed to John the Baptist. Um, this reliquary was found embedded in an altar in the ruins of a monastery on Sveti Island, <laughs> a small island in the Black Sea off uh, Sozopol in Bulgaria. Uh, the support for this find's authenticity comes from a, a Greek inscription found on another box that was also found with the reliquary uh, that talks about um, God save your servant Thomas to St John June 24th. Now June 24th is the date of the religious feast of St John the Baptist and the island's name and, uh, and the, the monastery's dedication to St John are considered supporting evidence as, uh, uh, as well. Now they did find out that some of the bones in the box were not, not human, but some of the bones were human and Oxford University uh, archaeologists undertook some carbon dating tests of those bones. They, they dated the right-handed knuckle bone, uh, shown here, uh, to the middle of the first century AD. Uh, when of course John is believed to have lived until his uh, beheading uh, as ordered by King Herod. But um, I think even more uh, plausible than the uh, the Bulgarian bone box of John the Baptist are the uh, additional names on this uh, ossuary. Uh, you can see this is uh, much less ornate than the Caiaphas ossuary, uh, someone much poorer uh, than the high priest family. But there's uh, the scratch inscription on here, which we read from 
right to left of course uh, in uh, Hebrew here uh, reads James son of Joseph brother of Jesus Yachob bar Yosef Achud Yeshua it's a mid first century AD chalk ossuary uh, noticed in 2010 I say noticed because it wasn't dug up in an archaeological dig in situ uh, but noticed in a um, in a shop of uh, an antique dealer uh, who didn't seem to to know the significance of, of what he had 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 it for years and had made nothing of it um, the fact that it wasn't you know found in situ did cause some controversy um, but over the years of study of this artifact uh, it seems that it, there is uh, it is genuinely first century and that the inscription goes back to the first century uh, as well now of course this combination of names is very uh, interesting uh, in terms of uh, Christianity when you have James son of Joseph who brother of Jesus so uh, you know Joseph uh, Jesus uh, from Nazareth Joseph from Nazareth and Jesus's brother St James uh, we know that James was martyred um, in AD 62 uh, 29 years after Jesus's crucifixion um, and this if this ossuary is indeed the the ossuary of James that would date this ossuary to uh, around about AD uh, 63. Uh, a 2014 peer-reviewed paper in um, the journal Open Journal of Geology for example supported the authenticity of the this ossuary in particular looking at the um, patina the the accumulation of dirt over the years basically on the ossuary surface matching that uh, in the grooves of the engravings looking at the way in which microfossils in the chalk stone uh, interacted with the inscription uh, and so on uh, to support the authenticity of this and if you want to read it you, you can find it for free online because it's an open access journal uh, the papers the authenticity of the James Ossery in the open journal of geology um, from 2014 uh, edition number four As Herschel Shanks, who was um, editor-in-chief of um, Biblical Archaeological Review magazine at the time, uh, said, uh, This box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, than not. In my opinion, it's likely that this inscription does mention the James and Joseph and Jesus of the New Testament. And our third and final category uh, would be historical culture. I'll just mention now because I've uh, remembered to mention uh, someone's ringing my doorbell but I'll let them just leave stuff um, that if you have questions as we're going along you can type them into the uh, the chat function here and um, we'll collate them behind the scenes and we'll try and uh, get to answering some of your your questions about these uh, after I've done this uh, last uh, final uh, section of the talk here, just one example of the sort of cultural background uh, that we can uh, bring to the New Testament through archaeology. A first century fishing boat. Um, in the 1980s, in the mid-80s, Israel suffered a drought uh, that caused the waters of the Sea of Galilee to, to recede. And a couple of local fishermen 
who also happened to be amateur archaeologists, discovered a, a, a boat buried in the mud, uh, which turned out to be a very well-preserved fishing boat from the time of Jesus. Um, the vessel measured um, over 27 feet long. It was apparently typical of fishing boats used in the Eastern Mediterranean at that time. Uh, archaeologists had to race against time to recover the boat from the mud before the waters returned and to, to preserve it. And it's now in a, in a museum. You can see it up here in a museum display. And uh, various things found with the boat, uh, pots and lamps and so on, helped to date it securely to the first century. And that was confirmed also by some radiocarbon dating of the, of the wooden planks of the boat to the first century. Looking at the design of the boat, it's interesting to note that at the back of the boat there's a, a raised section um, like that where Jesus uh, was probably sleeping in the story of Jesus calming the storm. Uh, also, you sh can show that the boat could easily accommodate, say, 15 people. Uh, so there would certainly have been room for Jesus and 12 disciples uh, in such a boat. There's a, a close-up picture uh, of the boat. But let's use this last section to concentrate on looking at what archaeology can tell us about people's beliefs about Jesus. And come back to this claim um, that we find, for example, in the, the Dan Brown uh, novel, uh, The Da Vinci Code. A little scene here for The Da Vinci Code. Uh, one character asking uh, another, um, Professor Teabing, um, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, you know, not as divine. Not the Son of God? Right, Teabing said. Uh, Jesus' establishment of the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, um, which happened, a uh, church council that happened in 325 AD in the 4th century. Uh, and this kind of, uh, this is a kind of extreme, fairly extreme example of what's called a, a late Christology, uh, late high Christology, that the idea that Jesus was divine sort of developed after Jesus's day, after the disciples' day, and grew up uh, in a um, Gentile context rather than the original Jewish context of Jesus and the disciples. Well, let me take you to this third century uh, church at Dura Europos. Um, you can see here an assembly room and a courtyard and various other rooms and we go up here to a, a baptistry and that baptistry is fascinating because it, it carries some pictures on the wall uh, including for example uh, this picture you may be able to make out somebody lying on a uh, on a bed and somebody carrying a bed on their back uh, there's a, a figure in a sort of toga with an arm outstretched over the, the figure on the bed. And it's pretty obvious that this is a depiction of Jesus healing the paralytic and the whole, you know, take up your bed and, and walk. Now they've interpreted it in terms of, uh, of their cultural ideas. Uh, it would have probably been more of take up your bed mat and walk rather than uh, your sort of iron bedstead kind of thing that's depicted here. But still, that, that's the, the, the scene that's being depicted in this baptistry in a third century church. And of course, the 
most significant thing about that story that's being depicted here when we look at it for example here in the mark uh, chapter 2 verses 3 to 12 is it all hinging upon jesus's authority to pronounce the forgiveness of of sins uh, which gets people uh, in his day all worked up because they ask you know who can forgive sins but god alone right so there's something of a, 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 a about jesus's uh, claim to his own status uh, going on here being referred to or this picture of uh, folks in a, in a boat uh, on the sea and what appears to be someone standing on the sea and someone else uh, up to their uh, knees uh, kind of in the sea uh, holding out an arm to the figure who's standing on the sea uh, holding out an arm to to each other uh, of course this immediately puts us in mind of the scene of jesus walking on the water and saint peter jumping out of the boat and running on the water towards jesus until uh he looks down and realizes what it what he's doing uh a little bit like uh wily e. coyote in the roadrunner cartoons and then starts sinking um but when you relate this scene to old testament background uh, think of uh, job 9 8 uh, he alone talking about god he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea um to walk on the water uh, may have been uh, Jesus symbolically uh, making uh, a claim about himself or at least uh, these people in the third century may be making that kind of claim on Jesus's behalf uh, that they believed this about him by by depicting that kind of a scene or this picture from directly above the baptistry where we have a picture of sheep and a shepherd carrying a, a, a lost sheep perhaps on his shoulders uh, and of course in the old testament this image of the shepherd is constantly applied by god to himself and it's an image that jesus applied to himself in uh, john 10 11 you know i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep um, think of uh, psalm 23 in the old testament the lord is my shepherd um, so there again it seems to be a divine claim going on here being referenced in the third century so we have several uh, apparent references in this third century baptistry to um, scenes from the bible that people are depicting that seem to show that they at least uh, thought of jesus in divine terms let's go a little earlier to the third century in about 230 a.d to a Christian church or prayer hall discovered in 2005 near Megiddo um, discovered indeed in the grounds of Megiddo prison when they were trying to um, do some works there to extend the prison and then they stumbled across a first century uh, village including this prayer hall and we have a reconstruction of what it would have looked like here with a little table in the middle and these uh, uh, frescoes uh, around it uh, mosaics uh, around it uh, and here is a top-down photograph of this hall and the the mosaics around the the, the plinth the top of the tables disappeared but the the, uh, the central plinth of the table is still there if we look at uh, a closer up image of these uh, fish in the middle of this mosaic on the on the left here uh, we know 
the context of a Christian prayer hall, a picture of fish, and we know that uh, the word fish uh, in Greek, ichthys, was used as an early Christian symbol, uh, both the, the sign of the fish and the word fish, uh, because the word fish was used in an acrostic, that's where you, you have a, a word where each letter of the word is the first letter of uh, its own word, and from the word, the letters of ichthys in Greek, you can make the acrostic uh, Jesus Christus Theoios Sater, or Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. Um, so, very plausibly, this uh, fish picture is a, a reference to a belief in the divinity of Jesus. But if we go over to the other side of the table and focus on this uh, mosaic here, and there's actually a uh, words uh, put into various of the mosaics about you know who paid for it and so on. Um, this inscription is particularly significant because it mentions uh, the God-loving Akeptus has uh, offered the table, uh, the communion table, to God Jesus Christ as a memorial. The God-loving Akeptus has offered the table to God Jesus Christ, or to the God Jesus Christ as a memorial, and the, uh, the God Jesus Christ uh, is, is uh, the Greeks didn't underline things, they overlined things, so th this is uh, overlined, emphasised in the mosaic indeed. There's a bigger picture of that inscription. Uh, this is uh, what's known as the Alex Aminos Graffito. It comes from uh, near the Palatine Hill in Rome, uh, dated to around 200 AD. And we have a, a picture of uh, a donkey-headed human figure. Uh, who's got his arms outstretched on what seems to be a, some kind of cross, crossbar, and we have a, a, another uh, a human figure with a again a hand sort of raised up. Uh, the human and the the donkey-headed person are looking at each other, and there's a scratched inscription in the plaster work along with it. Uh, that uh, has been uh, translated here as Anaximenos worships his God or it, some people translate it as Anaximenos worship your God um, seems to be uh, a sort of like a political cartoon kind of thing you know, making fun of this man Anaximenos who is, worships a crucified person you may think, you know, what, what's going on with the with the donkey head here? Oh, this is really fascinating, actually. Um, historian Tom Holland, uh, in his book uh, Dominion, uh, which is well worth uh, a read in itself, uh, mentions at one point uh, that to Greek scholars, the question of what might be found within the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple uh, was a tantalising one. Uh, he says that Poseidonus, never knowingly without a theory, claimed that it contained a golden ass's head. Uh, others believed that it held, quote, the stone image of a man with a long beard sitting on a donkey. Um, and we have uh, other uh, references to people making fun of Christians with donkey uh, imagery. Um, and it seems that this donkey imagery came from uh, Gentile 
theories about you know what was in the holy of holies of course um when the romans conquered Jerusalem in 79 and the, the general walks into the Holy of Holies to find out what's in there and is kind of astonished to find that there is no image, uh, no God statue or anything in there as there would have been in uh, Greek and Roman temples. Uh, there is no image in there. Uh, but that's this donkey imagery has been associated with the temple and you know the, the image of a god in a temple uh, by the Greco-Roman world so very plausibly this donkey imagery in the Arxaminos graffiti uh, suggests that the god being worshipped because you, you know, worship your god is supposed to be the Jewish god um, and that even more tightly ties this image to someone making fun of Alex Aminos for worshipping Jesus as God. Uh, remember this is dated around 200 AD, uh, so that's about uh, a century and a quarter before the Council of Nicaea. In 2011, uh, researchers identified what they believed to be, at the time, the, the world's earliest surviving Christian inscription, uh, with the fancy name of NCE 156. Yeah, I know. Uh, the inscription is written in Greek, dated to the latter half of the second century, uh, and it alludes to various Christian beliefs, although there's some discussion about whether it reflects uh, sort of early Gnostic. Christian beliefs. Uh, uh, if in fact it is a second century inscription, um, it says researcher Gregory Snyder, uh, and he thinks it probably is, um, it's about the earliest Christian material object we possess. Um, Snyder, who uh, wrote about this finding in the Journal of Early Christian Studies, uh, believes that it's a funereal epigram. Um, uh, you know, a, a poem associated with a with a, a funeral that incorporates both Christian and pagan elements, um, but it's still interesting when we read this very strange imagery from this epigram, um, and here it is in translation: uh, "To my bath, the brothers of the bridal chamber carry the torches." Here in our halls they hunger for the true banquets, even while praising the Father and glorifying the Son. Uh, there, uh, I with the Father and the Son, is the only spring and source of truth. But let me particularly draw your attention to this phrase, this idea of praising the Father and glorifying the Son, uh, in the same breath, in the same sentence. Finally, uh, the Rotas or Sator Square, um, discovered for example in Pompeii, uh, which dates it to before the uh, eruption of Mount Vesuvius uh, in AD 79, uh, and it's also found in other places including uh, Roman Sirencester in England. It's a, a Latin palindrome, that is the words uh, can be read forwards or backwards, uh, written horizontally and vertically in a in a square. Uh, backwards reading uh, rotas opera tenant arepo sator uh, translates as something like uh, farmer arepo works the wheels or works the plough. Uh, 
Uh, one could arrange the letters in this square into the shape of a cross with uh, the single letter N, maybe for the divine na name in the middle. Uh, the the words our father the opening of the lord's prayer uh, and the letters alpha and omega at the end horizontally and vertically and you can see that in the in the bottom image there underneath the square now of course according to revelation 1 8 jesus says uh, you know i am the alpha and omega who is and was uh, and who is to come the almighty um, also the letters can be arranged into a prayer um, Oreto te pater, oro te pater sanus. Uh, I pray to you, Father, I pray to you, Father, you heal. But there's much discussion in the literature about whether this is uh, to be taken as a, a Christian imagery and symbolism um, because of the way it can be arranged into a cross, the Alpha and Omega, the Our Father, um, and of course those links to the New Testament, or whether it is to be taken just as a Jewish symbolism uh, and links to uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah um, so it may not be it may not be Christian imagery but it may be Jewish imagery but then again it may be Christian imagery and it certainly seems to have been taken over uh, by Christians if even if it started out as Jewish um, and later uh, appearances of this uh, Rotas square um, seem uh, more comfortably to be called uh, Christian uh, usage of it. So we've put all this on a timeline. Let me take the let's take the crucifixion as uh, 33 AD. Let's stick over here on the right hand side the Council of Nicaea at 325 AD. Well, here. We have uh, the Dura Europos Church and the Megiddo Church that we looked at. Um, coming back here to 200 AD, we have the Alexaminos Graffito. Coming back even further, we have uh, the NCE 156 inscription. And um, pushing back before 100, if it is a Christian usage and that is debated, uh, we have the, the Pompeii Rotus Square. Um, that would you know, come about 50 years after the crucifixion but it, even if we leave that aside because it's controversial uh, NCE 156 uh, would date to sort of 150 to 200 years after the crucifixion uh, the Alox Amino graffiti and uh, the Megiddo church the Dura Europos church puts us around 200 230 years after the crucifixion which is still over a hundred years before the council of nicaea showing i think pretty clear evidence of people believing in the divinity of jesus uh, before the council of nicaea so you can you can debunk this uh, council of nicaea nicaea late high christology theory uh, simply from looking at the archaeological record This is uh, Paul Johannan, very briefly, I'll try and wrap things up, um, showed that uh, someone who had been crucified could get a burial because it was found uh, in an ossuary and we have a, a heel bone with a, a nail from a crucifixion uh, going through it. Uh, 
the Alex Ominos graffiti, of course, shows that crucifixion was very embarrassing. Uh, wouldn't it have been something that the Christians would make up about Jesus. Um, they report it because it happened. Uh, and the site with the best archaeological uh, historical claim to be the site of Jesus' burial uh, does indeed, I think, turn out to be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, and uh, they recently renovated uh, the sepulchre within the church there uh, and um, dated the uh, the original parts of the church that you know more has been added to over the years to the the fourth century uh, which supports the the dating the traditional dating of the construction of the first church of the, the holy sepulchre to mark where the tomb of christ was supposed to have been uh, during the reign of uh, emperor constantine we mentioned him earlier and they showed uh, here's a picture of the broken marble slab on top of the original rock surface of what is therefore plausibly the burial place of jesus and uh, national geographic archaeologist frank hibbert uh, mentioning that this appears to be visible proof that the location of the tomb hasn't shifted through time something that scientists and historians had, had wondered about for decades and this inscription from Nazareth, uh, upping the ante on punishment for tomb robbery, uh, seems to come from the first century from the reign of Claudius uh, in the, the 40s and 50s AD, forbidding a penalty under, under penalty of death, the robbing of bodies from tombs, uh, which is interesting and certainly makes sense in light of the Jewish argument recorded by Matthew that uh, Jesus' body had been stolen by the disciples. So, uh, to summarise, it, it seems that just by looking at the archaeological evidence, that would indicate that Jesus, son of Joseph and brother of James, who was buried in Jerusalem in the middle of the first century, existed in the early middle first century. That Jesus was crucified, which probably killed him. Uh, that a crucifixion could uh, indeed be given a decent burial that Jesus was buried and thus probably dead in a now empty Jerusalem tomb just outside what would have been the first century position of the city walls of Jerusalem uh, that grave robbery was an offence that may have been particularly associated with Nazareth for some reason where the New Testament says that Jesus lived uh, by the mid first century uh, that despite his highly embarrassing crucifixion Jesus was considered divine by at least some people within around uh, 175 years of his crucifixion. Uh, that in the early 3rd century, Jesus was held to be divine in the Judeo-Christian sense, uh, over a century before the Council of Nicaea. Uh, and that indeed, in general, the 1st century biographies of Jesus in the New Testament have been you know, repeatedly verified by archaeological discoveries relating to things like places, people, titles, culture, relationships between people, etc. Uh, which should all encourage us to trust those biographical reports, uh, even on matters that we can't independently verify.